Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Mani, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ava Naji, a consultant breast surgeon at Sydney Oncoplastic Surgery. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and it is a public health concern that affects many women and men right across Australia and the world. Yes, it's a year-round issue, but it is good to draw more attention to issues such as breast cancer from time to time because awareness of diseases like breast cancer begins with education. And we know that education, especially of the signs and symptoms, can lead to earlier diagnosis, which can lead to better outcomes for a patient as well. Dr. Ava, upon completing her training and becoming a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, embarked on a subspecialty training in breast surgery. And these stints saw her receive comprehensive instruction in advanced surgical techniques relevant to breast cancer at the Post Centre in North Sydney and at the Nottingham Breast Institute, which is a class-leading breast cancer treatment centre in the United Kingdom. And while Dr. Ava offers the full suite of surgical treatments for breast cancer patients, her professional interests include the use of breast-conserving surgery, which we are going to hear a lot more about today, as well as why it's important to seek second opinions for something as serious breast cancer surgery and the newer research that is leading to a lower incidence of lymphedema and less scarring for breast cancer patients. I started by asking Dr. Ava what she thought was the biggest misconception about breast cancer. There are probably two misconceptions that are common and come across. Firstly, the biggest misconception I find is that patients think that it is a disease only that affects older women. That if you are young, that it surely cannot be cancer. But breast cancer can affect anyone, young or old, men or women. So if you do feel a lump or have a symptom that could be associated with cancer, please get it checked out with your GP. It's always better to be safe than sorry. The second common misconception is this, that cancer equals a mastectomy operation where the entire breast, including the nipple, needs to be removed. This is actually far from the truth. More than 50% of patients can actually have a lumpectomy instead when only the cancer is removed, leaving behind the remainder of the breast and often the nipple as well. And of course, the earlier the cancer is picked up, generally the smaller the tumour is, and therefore the higher likelihood of not requiring a mastectomy. So early detection is really important. So tell us about your career and how you get, got started in the work that you do today. So I completed my medical school in Melbourne. and initially wanted to be an emergency department specialist. However, as I gained more experience into emergency work, I found that it just wasn't a good fit for me as much as I had hoped. Surgery is more to my liking because of the level and duration of engagement between patient and doctor. I was attracted to the aspect of being so directly linked to the treatment of my patient's ailment. So general surgical training was completed in New South Wales within hospitals such as Ronald Shaw and St Vincent's Hospitals. 
Towards the end of surgical training, as I contemplated some specialising, I realised that the field of breast surgery showed a lot of promise for me. First, new and innovative surgical techniques being developed within breast surgery were proving themselves to be remarkably beneficial to patients. Second, being a woman allowed me to connect with patients more easily. I know how traumatic it can be to a woman when the idea of a mastectomy is raised. Subspecialty training in breast surgery was split between the Post Centre in North Sydney and the Nottingham Breast Institute in the UK. I was very fortunate for those two and a half years in fellowship training, learning from the world experts in the field. They have certainly made me the surgeon that I am today. Yeah, amazing. And now you're predominantly based at North Shore Private Hospital. Is that correct? That's correct. I consult mainly out of North Shore Private, but I do operate in North Shore Private, St. Vincent's Private, and I also go up to Gosford Private as well. Okay, awesome. And in regards to, I guess, coming back to the patients that you see and that connection that you have as a woman, you can, I guess they resonate with when they're seeing their professional, the healthcare professional that is also a woman, sharing quite intimate details about themselves and the journey that they're going through. I can imagine that there is that resonance there. In relation to those early stages, what are some of the symptoms that women might experience for uh, early stage or even more progressed breast cancer? So breast cancer is detected through two main routes, self-detection or breast screen. Self-detection is when the woman usually feels a lump in her breast, usually when performing a self-exam. She would then typically see a GP about it and possibly get some scans. Breast screen is a screening program that is offered and recommended to women for free once they reach the age of 40. It involves mammograms every two years. So if a cancer is self-detected, symptoms may include firstly a change in the appearance of the breast, such as a size or shape, skin changes, dimpling or indentation, or changes to the nipple, such as redness or rash that may look very much like dermatitis, a clear or bloody discharge, especially if it occurs without squeezing the nipple and from one breast only, or a nipple that turns inwards when it originally used to stick out. Or something that is felt, so a lump, especially if it's only in one breast, ongoing unusual pain that's not related to your normal monthly menstrual cycle that remains after your period and occurs in one breast only, and swelling or discomfort in the armpit, which may mean that there's some lymph node involvement of cancer cells. Just remember that most breast changes aren't caused by cancer, but if you do have symptoms, just go to your GP for an assessment. So in relation to that earlier statistic that you mentioned or that misinformation that women often believe that it is just elderly women that experience breast cancer. Um, what age groups are we talking about? Where are there statistics in relation to the demographic or the ages of women that are most likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer? So most common is between 50 and 75. And that's why breast screen screen specifically for this age group. So although letters are going out to women between the ages of 50 and 75, there's actually free to have it from the age of 40. As an example, as soon as I turned 40, that was my birthday present to myself. I went down to breast screen in St. Leonard's and had a mammogram just to make sure it was okay. And then even after 75 years of age, when you're not specifically asked to come with a letter, 
um, you can keep doing that for the rest of your life. Because remember, just because you've reached 75 years old doesn't mean that you're not going to get breast cancer. And women in their 90s are getting breast cancer. And if they're well enough, then we would do simple, you know, lumpectomy and make sure that they continue a healthy life. Mm. And you also mentioned earlier in regards to the treatment, often people believe that they will need to have a full mastectomy. And of course, this would depend on the diagnosis that they were given. So how is breast cancer diagnosed? And then what are the different types of breast cancer that one can experience? So whether it's through self-exam or whether it's breast screen, breast cancer types are very much the same. So there's two main types of invasive breast cancer. The most common is a ductal cancer, which comprises about 80% of breast cancer cases. The second most common is lobular cancer, which counts for about 10% of the breast cancer cases. Now, as doctors, we are also very interested in the biology of the cancer, how these cancers behave, how, they, how fast do they grow, whether they're likely to spread, how they respond to treatment. For example, some cancers are fueled by hormones, such as estrogen and progesterone. These cancer cells have big flags on them for these hormones. So as part of their treatment, we can give anti-hormone tablet, which reduce the ability for these cells to grow and spread. I kind of liken it to taking fuel away from the car. Without fuel, it doesn't go anywhere and it doesn't do anything. Similarly, other cancers have another type of flag called HER2. H-E-R number two, which also fuels the growth of cancer cells. We can similarly give medication to block this. For those cancers that do not have any flags, so they have no estrogen, no progesterone, no HER2 flags, these are called triple negative breast cancers. And whilst we can't give the same type of medications to block them in the same way, they respond really well to chemotherapy. So every patient diagnosed with this type of cancer will generally receive chemotherapy. I see. And in regards to that age group and then the hormones that are related with some types of breast cancer, is there that correlation between women that are perimenopausal and developing breast cancer? So again, whether you're young or old, you can develop any type of breast cancer, but the type of treatment that we give also depends on age. So women who are older and can't necessarily have chemotherapy won't. And if you're premenopausal, the anti-hormone medication is different. It's tamoxifen. And tamoxifen actually blocks the receptor or blocks the flag on the cancer cell to, so the estrogen can't bind onto it. Versus those who are postmenopausal, we give something called aromatase inhibitor because now your ovaries are not producing the estrogen, is the fat cells in the rest of your body. And so what that does is prevent the conversion to estrogen in the outside body. So there's different ways of actually managing the disease, but in very much the aim is very similar. Mm, I see. And also men can also experience breast cancer, which is a much smaller percentage of the population, of course. It is more rare. And because I guess maybe men aren't as in touch with their bodies or they don't expect that they could get breast cancer, it can often be diagnosed at a later stage. What are some of these symptoms that men should watch out of or observe? Is it similar to that of women that you described earlier? Yeah. So initially what you're saying, that's true. So breast cancer in men is not as common as women. There's only about 150 men per year being diagnosed compared to about 17,000 women in Australia. 
And because men often believe that they can't get breast cancer, they often don't self-examine. And even if a symptom does arise, a medical opinion is not often sought until much later. So the symptoms are very similar to those found in women. It can include like a painless lump or thickening, especially behind the nipple where the ducts lie, changes in the skin, including dimpling or puckering, changes in the nipple, such as a redness or a rash or scaling that looks very similar to dermatitis or psoriasis, and a discharge from the nipple, and again, any lump that's in the armpit. So again, if they have any of these symptoms, just see your GP and they can probably have an imaging and even a biopsy may be required. And in regards to treatment options, so what are the current treatment options? We now don't, you know, not everyone has to go through a full mastectomy, which once that may have been the case. So the common treatment options and then also how they may differ for men and women, because obviously men typically don't have as much breast tissue there as well. So because cancer is such a serious condition, I don't think I would say that there are options per se. Rather, I think that there are different strategies to treatment. Commonly, there's multiple strategies that are used to treat patients, and whether that's women or men. So first, surgery is used to physically remove the cancer, and that can be through a mastectomy or lumpectomy. But as a general rule, men have mastectomies. Surgery may also involve reconstructing the breast for women to help reduce any deformity from removing the cancer. And during the surgery, a number of glands called lymph nodes will also be removed from the armpit to assess whether any of the cancer cells have stepped out of the breast and traveled to the site. Second, there's radiation therapy, also called radiotherapy. This involves the use of radiation beams to kill off any unseen cancer cells that may be in the breast region after surgery. Thirdly, there's systemic treatment. This includes chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or anti-hormone therapy. So chemotherapy uses drugs to target certain types of cells, usually fast multiplying ones, and tries to kill them off. Some types of breast cancers, and you remember that we were talking about the flags, so those that do not have any flags, the triple negative breast cancers, they're particularly sensitive and vulnerable to chemotherapy. But unfortunately, chemotherapy also has many unpleasant side effects, which is why oncologists are always very careful when recommending it for their patients. Immunotherapy, this is a new and exciting field which aims to activate the body's own immune system to detect and kill off cancer cells in the body. And then anti-hormone therapy, which we've been talking about, which changes the hormone levels within the body to deprive the cancer of the hormone uh, that it needs to thrive. But because cancers are so varied in their characteristics, some cancers may or may not need radiation therapy. Some may even not require chemotherapy. Because of this, the various cancer specialists in a hospital will usually typically meet on a fortnightly basis to discuss patient cases to ensure the best strategy is being employed to treat them. These specialists make up what we call a multidisciplinary team. So how many team members may be involved in the treatment of one person's breast cancer diagnosis? Oh, that's, that's quite a few, actually, because we start from, say, the surgeon who removes the cancer. This is then sent to the pathologist. And even before that, you know, we have to diagnose it. So the, mm. the GP or breast screen, and then you have the radiologist that look at the images. Then the core biopsy that is taken that's sent to the pathologist to have a look at that. They then see the cancer specialist who removes the cancer. Then the 
multidisciplinary team come into play, which is then kind of delegated who particular, uh, which subspecialty is actually used to treat the cancer. So that would be a medical oncologist for chemotherapy, radiation oncologist for the radiotherapy. And it kind of depends. Sometimes it's a surgeon, some, sometimes it's a radiation oncologist or medical oncologist who then looks at um, other treatments, so, so immune therapy or endocrine treatments or anti-hormone treatment. But then we also have many people who are involved in a day-to-day -day basis. So breast care nurses, the nurses in the hospital, you know, it's a whole team approach, a very holistic approach. So it's never just one person. Uh, it takes a whole team effort to make sure that you're getting the best treatment. Mm. And we have seen changes in breast cancer treatment over the last few decades. You mentioned that you saw that there was an opportunity for you because there were some exciting developments in breast cancer treatment. Can you explain what some of those are or were that kind of, I guess, in a better, lack of a better word, enticed you to work in breast cancer surgery? Well, to be completely honest, I actually didn't have any desire to go into breast cancer surgery was in medical school. Apart from wanting to be in the emergency physician, I just saw the type of operations and the prognosis for these women, which is so dismal. You know, mastectomies were the go-to, clearing out the entire lymph nodes from the armpit left a lot of morbidity, lymphedema, swelling in the, the... I just didn't think that I could contribute a lot. But as time went on, uh, the surgery changed. So we realised we didn't have to do mastectomies. We could just remove the cancer with a lump and pair that with radiotherapy. So when we take out the lump, pair it with radiotherapy, the prognosis and overall survival and recurrence rate is, is exactly the same as for someone who's had a mastectomy. So that completely revolutionised what we could do by breast-conserving surgery. Then the concept of sentinel node biopsy. So this is actually a biopsy of the guardian node. So when a cancer steps out of the breast, it travels through the lymphatics and goes to the armpit, you know, the glands or the lymph nodes. And the first one that it goes to is called the sentinel node or the guardian node of the remainder of the nodes. And we found that if we give a little injection into the breast where, around the tumour, so this has dual function. So we give a low-dose radiation called technetium and a blue dye called patent blue. Both of these get taken up into the lymphatics and goes to the lymph nodes. And we can actually remove the desired central node by seeing it, hearing it. And, you know, the morbidity associated with really significant. We don't have to routinely attack out the entire lymph nodes. And so lymphedema and swelling of the arm has significantly reduced. On top of that, the most exciting thing for me as a surgeon is the concept of oncoplastics. So survivorship is really important. We now know that with early breast cancer, the survival rates are really, really good. Most women are actually going to live a long and healthy life. So for me, it is totally unacceptable to leave large scars, deformed breasts, because this is a constant reminder for women every single day that they've gone through breast cancer and all the associated treatment that they've had. Now, oncoplastics, so oncol is the part of the oncology, so removing cancer, but also plastics, so reconstruction of the breast, whether that's for breast-conserving surgery, so a lumpectomy, and also if you've had a mastectomy, how do we recreate the shape to look as normal as possible? So for me as a surgeon, de-escalating surgery, so we don't have to perform such 
invasive surgeries as we did and also to look as normal as possible. So you can get on with your life. You've had your training. You don't have to be constantly reminded every single day that you've gone through this. Picture it like a blip in the road. Get on with your life and enjoy the quality of life that you have. That's the biggest thing. On top of that, I've got a research background. So I've got a biomedical science and PhD. So really, for me, research is a huge thing. Everything that we do in the surgical life, in medical oncologists, radiation oncology, all stems from research. So the more research that we do, the better we are at treating women. And on top of that, I love to teach. I think I get that from my mum. She's a doctor as well, and she's always taught me. And I love teaching my patients. A lot of them come in with a lot of fears and anxieties and misconceptions. And so to talking about what is cancer, how does one develop it, the anatomy, the physiology, how are we going to go about treating it to be fully informed? And I would say the most often than not, people leave at the end of the consultation feeling better than when they came. Wow, that's a really nice effect to have on someone. And it is really incredible what education can do to dispel fears and, Absolutely. and as well, because there's a lot, I'm sure you see a lot of myths floating around out there on forums and outdated information. Absolutely. So a lot of patients would come in, okay, C word is I'm going to die. I'm going to, okay, when is my mastectomy happening? You know, should I be looking at my will? You know, all these things. And I really have to just calm them down and say, look, you have early breast cancer. Any lady who does not have metastatic disease is classified as early. And every treatment that we're going to be doing is with the aim of cure. And just to reevaluate the setting, reduce that anxiety, get as much information as possible, which empowers the patient. Mm, it's very so. rewarding for me as well. So how has survival rate changed in the last decade in Australia? So in the 1980s, breast cancer was less common. About one in 10 women were diagnosed with it. The statistic has worsened over the last 40 years, and we can't explain all the reasons for this change. Although if we link it to obesity, which has increased, and more frequent use of hormone-influencing medication by women today, that might explain a portion of this change. In the last decade, I'd estimate breast cancer would have gone from about one in nine women to one in eight. It's now probably even approaching one in seven. It's become more common, but actually it's not all bad news. Like I said earlier, survival rates are high and are still improving, especially for those women with early breast cancer. So early breast cancer is defined as any patient does not have metastatic disease or stage four. For almost all of my patients, I tell them that the intention of treatment is curative in nature, and I expect them to see many years of life ahead of them. For those patients whose cancer have spread to other parts of the body, the intention is no longer curative, but to live as much as possible a healthy, normal life with the cancer. A lot of research has been conducted and new drugs being developed to help patients like this. Patients may at times be offered the opportunity to be on these drugs as a form of a trial. So just um, going further onto that in regards to living with cancer, are you able to explain that a little bit further? Because for someone that might not experience cancer or have had family members with it, the idea of living with cancer is, it could be pretty brutal. So what does that look like for these individuals? For ladies who got metastatic disease, Treatment is often systemic. So giving chemotherapy or immunotherapy or anti-hormone tablets and a combination of each. And new medications are actually being brought out quite frequently. And the way that we can actually give them to ladies 
is it needs to be funded. And the funding usually comes from the government or other bodies. And by putting patients on a trial, they can actually be funded rather than having for the patient to pay for all or some of it. What that means is that you're continuing on to having treatment, but you live with the disease. And I sort of liken it a bit to if you have diabetes, right? So if you have diabetes, you live with the disease, you're never curing of it in most occasions, but you have medication to stop the progression, downgrade it, shrink it, and continue on with life with having the cancer in your body. It's not a curative in any sense. Mm. And how long could you expect that someone would live with the disease if the growth is able to be minimised or stopped at some point? So it kind of depends on where the cancer cells have spread to. So we can see if it spreads to the bone, we can, women can live many years associated with this. It comes a bit more complicated if it spreads to, say, for example, the liver. Taking every patient that has metastatic disease, we're finding at about five years survival rate, about 30%. Yeah, and I'm sure that is going to continue to change as, as more research comes out with these newer therapies as well. Dr. Ava, are you able to share three pieces of advice for someone that is experiencing breast cancer, perhaps something that you often share with your patients that can certainly help ease their mind or give them some additional support or education through such a difficult time? If I might broaden the advice out to women in general first. My first advice is for women to take their own health seriously. Being diligent with your own health is so important. That can take shape in many ways, including nutrition, exercise, lifestyles, choice, such as drinking and smoking. But the most important thing is to be on top of your health. Do your breast exam. Attend your regular breast screens and pap smears. Don't ignore changes with your body when you notice them. Ignoring things rarely makes them go away. See a GP, they are there to help. Always better to have checked out something and find out that there's nothing wrong than ignore it, always. Early action can save your life. To women who are battling cancer, my first advice is to take your treatment one day at a time. Treatment for cancer is a real marathon. You'll have good days, you'll have bad days. Cutting the treatment down into day-by-day bite-sized pieces will help things keep psychologically and emotionally manageable. The second advice to patients is this, get the support you need. Many patients feel guilty for needing support from their families. They often fear that they are being burdens to their loved ones. This is simply false. So conversely, loved ones of cancer patients often don't know how to help. And all the patient needs to say is, I need a bit of support. Support can come in many forms, a listening ear, accompanying the patient to doctor's consultations, or even just doing a bit of shopping. Small things can do a lot for the patient. Support can also be found in patient forums. The Breast Cancer Network Australia has an online community for patients, and it is phenomenal for the level of support patients can get there from other patients and nurses. The third and last piece of advice is this. Equip yourself with as much information as possible. No healthcare provider has all the answers. So if you don't get what you're looking for, or if you're not sure of the advice you're getting, seek an additional opinion. I recommend to my patients to seek second opinions, as we were talking about before, from other doctors, other surgeons, if they are unsure of the recommendations they receive. This helps patients to be better informed so they can make better decisions for themselves. 
Mm, that's wonderful advice. Much more encouraging. Mm. So since early detection provides the best chance of survival, how can we do a self-check, breast check at home? I mean, I hear lots of stories about someone just noticing some skin changes in the mirror. Actually, we had a guest on the show who I was recording with this morning, and that's exactly what she noticed, some changes to her skin texture. She wasn't doing routine self-breast checks or anything like that, but I think it's really important to at least be putting some kind of semi-regular practice into our routines. So are you able to just talk us through how we can do that? Yeah, so I encourage all my patients to self-examine on a monthly basis. Even if women have dense or naturally lumpy breast, the more that we know about our breasts, the greater the likelihood we are to find things early. So all my patients ask them to put a reminder in their phone to perform this on a monthly basis. And usually for ladies, self-examine around 10 days after your period, as this is a time when the glands are least likely to be swollen from the hormonal stimulation during the cycle. For men, any time is fine, but again, on a monthly basis. And it really should be paired with when you do your testicle exam to rule out testicular cancer. So first start looking at your both breasts in the mirror for any irregularities, dimples and changes. Place your arms up above your head, out to the side and on your hips, because doing this motion, this movement can actually exaggerate any signs such as skin puckering or pulling in of the nipples. I think the remainder is best performed in the shower And I advise the ladies to use soap or conditioner, which is great lubrication on the skin. Picture the breast as a clock face. So start at the 12 o'clock position on one of your breasts, just underneath your collarbone. And using the flat surface of your three fingers, not the tip of the fingers, which is way too sensitive, use a circular motion to feel for any lumps or thickening under the skin and in the breast tissue. Then you move along to the one o'clock position, the two o'clock position, and just work your way around to the back of 12 o'clock. So this will cover sort of the perimeter and gradually move inwards, a circle closer to the center of the breast, covering the entire breast until you reach the nipple. Remember that the breast actually extends into the armpit. So don't forget to fill at this part as well. After covering the entire breast, have a look at the nipple and feel for any lumps just beneath the, the nipple. Gently squeeze the nipple at the base. A small amount of discharge may be found. If it is clear or bloodstained, it's it's best to see your GP at that point. Finally, you feel underneath your armpit for any lumps or swelling. Perform this on the other breast. If you feel a lump, don't panic. See if there's one symmetrical on the other side. And remember that most lumps are not cancer, but it's always best to get a check with a GP. And you might need some imaging and a tissue biopsy. Well, considering this is a podcast and no one can see the you know, descriptive terms, you've done very well to be able to describe that description, but we'll make sure in the show notes as well that we provide some resources for anyone that would like to see a visual representation of how to do this at home. Dr. Ava, I'd love to hear about your favourite career moment, whether this be in research or in your clinical practice. So a lot of my patient workload is actually seeing patients as a second opinion. For women who've been diagnosed with breast cancer, who've seen other surgeons and who have recommended mastectomies. So one particular patient, let's call her Lisa. Lisa, she was diagnosed with breast cancer in last year. She was referred to a breast surgeon who performed a lumpectomy, so took out the cancer only. But unfortunately, not all the cancer was removed at that time. It was quite large. And so further surgery was 
recommended. So he said that he would like her to undergo a mastectomy to remove the breast as well as the nipple and perform reconstruction. And the reconstruction that was recommended is called a deep inferior epigastric perforator. It's quite a mouthful. You can call it DEP for short. And it's essentially using a large portion of your lower tummy. They remove it and they use it to use that as the tissue to recreate a, a new breast. So that is the flap. The significant out-of-pocket costs of the Dieppe reconstruction and the prospect of losing her breasts and nipple as well convinced her to seek a second opinion. So she came to see me and she actually had double D breast. We concluded that a larger lumpectomy was very feasible, but because a significant amount of breast tissue needed to be removed over the two surgeries, breast reconstruction was really recommended. We needed to do something because if you just remove that area, there's a whole cavity that's missing and you've got a huge indentation at that point. So it needed to be, re needed to be restored and the appearance of the affected breast needed to be improved. So the reconstruction part in this case was called uh, mammoplasty. Mammoplasty is actually a plastic method that is used for patients who have large breasts. It's used to not only reduce the size of the breast but also raise the nipple to a higher position. We can now use this technique to help breast cancer patients whereby the tissue that would otherwise have been removed and discarded, we can use that to be placed in the cavity where the cancer used to be. So in doing so, large volumes of breast tissue can be removed without the requirement of mastectomy. Fortunately, after the operation, this was successful. All the cancer was removed. And she's got a new appearance of her breast. It's smaller and more lifted. It's nicely contoured. Over the two surgeries, she had a total of nearly 450 grams of breast removed, but she's looking great. She's happy with the ability to maintain her breast and her nipple. She's undergone her radiotherapy and is scheduled for a mammoplasty on the other side, so a reduction in lift on the other side. So we have an improved symmetry in the upcoming weeks. So for me, having trained overseas and learned techniques that we can actually preserve breasts without jumping automatically to mastectomies, this has just completely revolutionized how we do things. You know, we can remove up to 40 to 50% of the breast and still be able to keep the remainder of the breast, reconstruction with mammoplasty or things called chest wall perforator flaps, and to increase the quality of life for these women. Mm. It's just, for me, it just highlights how happy the situation, it could have been really a disaster if we went to It's not a bad thing. It's not a wrong decision but we've got better ways of doing things. And I think implementing this for our patients is just really wonderful. Yeah, what a wonderful outcome for her as well. And I can imagine for women, it can be a little feel like they need to listen to everything that their doctor says and they might feel a bit fearful about seeking a second opinion. What is your advice for women that may have had or women or men who have had a diagnosis and they're thinking about having a second opinion? Do it, do it, do it. Every single patient that I see, I always recommend if they're unhappy with the advice that I have given to seek a second opinion, there is no harm. Don't worry about offending the surgeon or any doctor that you see. No doctor is always going to have every single piece of information. You have to be comfortable with what is recommended get as much information as you can and ask to see a second opinion. That's perfectly fine. Don't feel guilty. It's all, ultimately, this is your body. These are your breasts. This is your treatment. It's all about you. 
and you should be the one guiding how you want to go. Of course, you're going to be recommended things, but ultimately you're the one who's going to make the decision whether you go ahead with it or not. Mm. Definitely do it. That's really good advice. And even I think people see their doctors as almost an authority figure. So they might not even feel like they're allowed to go seek a second opinion. But in fact, we are. Absolutely. A normal woman who happened to go into a specific field, but I'm just as average as every other person. I don't have any hierarchy complex. Or, you know, I don't have any of that. We're just trying to do the best for our, our patients. My best day is seeing patients, making sure they're okay, operating on them, and then coming home to see my husband and playing with my great Danes. It's <laughs> as normal as they come. Yeah, yeah. Now, in regards to the future of breast cancer care, you also mentioned that you have also done research as well. What do you think will change in the future of breast cancer care? And is there any further research that you're being involved in? Or are you just focusing more on the practical and the educational aspects of your role? So if the last 30 years of breast cancer treatment is a guide to go by, I'd say we'll continue to make progress in treating women with breast cancer and ultimately improving the outlook for these patients. I think we'll learn to do more with less. Less invasive and certainly disfiguring surgery will become the norm. We'll deepen our understanding of the many different types of breast cancer and continue to fine tune the treatment strategies for them. I think immunotherapy has a lot of promise and I hope we will see some progress on that front soon. I think as we learn more about the factors that lead to cancer, we'll get better at reducing the occurrence of breast cancer. I think the field of genetics is one to really watch out for. We are only scratching the surface in our understanding of the genes that influence cancer. We all, everybody seems to know about BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene mutations that increase the cancer risk. And, but there are many other genes that have links to cancer and we're still studying them. So as we find more, hopefully we can take steps to manage those risks better. In terms of research for me, the latest research that I was involved with in the UK is doing a large audit of close to 300 patients who had required chemotherapy and they received chemotherapy before the surgery. So this is called neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And I had a look at how many of these people actually could have just a lymph node biopsy rather than clearing out all of the lymph nodes. Because still a large proportion of surgeons and what is recommended still is that if your lymph nodes are involved before you have surgery, so it's very obvious that the lymph nodes are involved when you get diagnosed, it is still recommended by many to have a lymph node dissection or clear out the entire lymph nodes. But actually, once they go through chemotherapy, a large proportion of women actually have a downgrade of cancer in the lymph nodes, meaning that the chemo has melted away most, if not all of the cancer in the lymph nodes. And so for those women who have a low burden of disease, meaning that only one or two lymph nodes are affected, these ladies, about 80% of them can actually have a lymph node biopsy rather than going straight to clearance. So there'll, there'll be quite a large number of ladies who have a de-escalation, they don't need to have it, and they won't need to have all the side effects such as lymphedema and chronic pain associated with this surgery. And I was very happy, I was actually invited to present in America, down in Texas, in a large cancer field, a conference. And I think the more that we endeavour to spend time and money into research, the better we will all become and how we diagnose and manage 
men and women with breast cancer. Mm. And that's so true. And congratulations on that research. I'm sure that years down the track, it will be really exciting to see a decrease in women experiencing lymphedema and significant scarring and such because of that newer research that's coming out. Now, where can people find more about you, Dr. Ava? I think my, my practice has a website. So if you type in www.oncoplasticsurgery, .com.au, you'll find it. But it's probably just easier if you just Google Dr. Avanaji, you'll find me there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and sharing about the future of breast cancer care in Australia as well. Thank you very much for having me. Wow, what an incredibly important conversation, especially that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And Dr. Ava shared so much gold from her extensive experience in the field. But the three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me was number one, breast conserving surgery. Dr. Ava explained how this is one of her preferred methods when it is a possibility for patients. And the outcomes, both physically, mentally, emotionally, can often be so much better as well because there's not such significant trauma to that breast area at, as compared to a radical mastectomy, which was so widely performed just only uh, a couple of decades ago. Number two, Dr. Ava explained that it is okay to ask for a second opinion. And I understand that we see that our doctors and our surgeons and our specialists are some kind of authority figure, but it is completely within our rights to ask for a second opinion. And this is not going to upset the doctor. Um, this is something that they expect in their training as well. And as it is your life and your breast and your body, it is completely okay to get a second opinion, educate yourself as much as you can. And then from there, with all the information going forward, uh, you can go with the, the surgeon, with the professionals uh, that you know, sit right with you and sit right with your treatment journey. And number three, this new research that Dr. Ava spoke about, really exciting, really incredible. We're seeing a lower incidence of lymphedema in patients. We're seeing less scarring. We're see, seeing better outcomes. And it's really exciting to see where this might just be in 10 to 15 years time. So thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. As it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And even if you're listening to this episode months in advance, I recommend that you share this specific episode with someone that you know that may have breast cancer or someone that you know that their mother, sister, loved one, cousin has breast cancer. Because as I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, education uh, is really important. It brings power. It brings confidence. It, it reduces fear in us as well. Um, breast cancer, many of us or all of us have heard of it, but we don't necessarily know a lot about it. And if we can educate ourselves on it, 
we might just be able to provide that little bit more support for that person that is going through breast cancer. So thanks again. Um, please take a screenshot while you're listening to this episode. Tag us on social media. It helps to spread the word more than you know. And I look forward to bringing you another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast next week, Tuesday morning. Until then, be skin powered.